0: Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 46. You can also read along on page 7 of your bulletin. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. This is the word of God.
1: Last week we began a series on Lent and uh, this week we enter into the passion of the Christ. Uh, These are the final days leading up to the cross and the word passion means Suffering, it means agony. In today's passage, we're gonna focus on four things, and they all revolve around Jesus's agony, Jesus's suffering. We're gonna look at uh, the root of the agony. Uh, We're gonna look at the love of uh, the Savior. We're gonna look at the obedience of the Son, and then ultimately, how do you apply that? The uh, root of the agony, the obedience of our Savior, the, uh, sorry, the, the love of our Savior, the obedience of the Son, and how we can apply that. First, we're going to look at the root of the agony. What what was it that Jesus was going through? And uh, it begins in verse 36 here in this text. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, who's them? It's the 12 disciples. He says to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, they're both his disciples, and so Jesus went into the deeper part of the garden, an olive grove, with his three closest friends. He had 12 disciples, right? 12 close disciples, probably had more disciples than that. 12 close disciples, and among the 12, he had three really close friends among those 12 disciples. And he goes into this deeper part of the garden. But in verse 37, he says, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. The Greek literally implies here that he began as he was walking, He's walking with his friends to this place, and all of a sudden, it's set in. What began? In verse 38, Jesus says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So Jesus begins to experience a sorrow that is so overwhelming. This is the agony. So overwhelming, it's a spiritual agony, a mental agony, an emotional agony, A psychological agony. He's so overwhelmed. It's so strong. He says, this is killing me. I'm dying. Even before he went to the cross, Jesus is saying, my friends, I'm dying. And he literally was dying. I mean, this is amazing. First of all, you never have in any other religion... In any other faith system, there's no such thing as a God that comes down and suffers like this, is weak like this, is vulnerable like this for his people. And so this is amazing because this is Jesus, this is God, and yet even he is so overwhelmed because of whatever he's going through, it's so unbearable. The gospel according to St. Luke, Luke says that Jesus is literally sweating and bleeding at the same time. Hematrodosis. It's usually caused by severe agony, a severe distress that blood is being mixed in with your sweat. Even before he's going to the cross, Jesus is literally dying, Bleeding. What's happening? In verse 39, Jesus asks the Father, may this cup be taken from me? Another way of saying that, he says, must I drink from this cup? Three times he asks that question. Verse 39, verse 42, verse 44. What is the cup? The cup represents the justice of God. The cup represents the wrath of God as a penalty for our sins. Now, in ancient times, people were often executed by drinking poison. You drank from a cup. Your body absorbs this poison, and it feels like you're burning up inside, and like a, like there's a fire inside, and then you die. So the ancients used the term, the cup, to represent justice, to represent wrath. And so when Jesus says, will you take this cup from me, what he's asking is, Must I absorb the justice of God? Must I absorb the wrath of God? And Jesus is saying, must I do this? Must I endure this? This is the root of Jesus' agony. What began in verse 37? I mean, it couldn't have been the news that Jesus was going to die. He knew he was going to die. In fact, he predicted he was going to die. And he was very precise about how he was going to die. He would be betrayed. He would be arrested. That he would suffer. He would even go to the cross. Jesus says this to his disciples, and that he would die. He knew he was going to be drinking the cup. But as he is walking, now he's beginning to experience it. He's experiencing God turning away from Jesus. He was experiencing it and it was killing him. Remember, Jesus, he was one with the Father. He had oneness with the Father. Jesus had the eternal love of the Father. Jesus had the embrace of the Father. He had the in- intimacy of the Father, the acceptance and approval of the Father. He had the peace of the Father. He had the presence of God and he never once wavered in his faithfulness. But as he's walking, he's starting to pray He's starting to commune with the Father. He turns his soul, essentially, to the Father. He's turning his face to God. And there he began to see emptiness. He began to hear silence. That's the agony. There was nothing there. He was starting to experience the separation from God. The agony of hell. What is hell? Hell is complete separation from God. So instead of seeing the presence of God, he was was starting to experience the absence of God, and it overwhelmed him. And he says to his friends, I'm dying. Why did he do it? It This is the love of the Savior. Jesus chose to do it because of his love. Now, a sinful heart oftentimes turns from God. A sinful heart turns from God, who is king, And he runs from God. Why? So that he could be his own king. If you look all the way, if you turn your Bibles all the way to the first book of the Bible, right, Uh, that's the book of Genesis. In the Garden of Eden, God told Adam essentially that you can either have me or you can have this tree. God told Adam not to eat of the fruit of the tree. And he said, basically, what he's saying is you can either have me or you can have this tree. What did Adam do? Adam chose the tree. Adam chose to reject God. Adam chose to disobey God because of his distrust of God. I mean, why would God withhold this good thing from me? He must not be trusted. He must not be trustworthy. And so he disobeys God. But that tree, it represented selfishness. It represented self-glory, self-serving. And so really, the wrath of God, the wrath of God is God giving Adam, giving us, giving our hearts what we really want. So God turns away from us. That's what we're looking for. We're looking to run from God, hide from God, do, be our own king, not serve God. In other words, what God is saying to Adam is this. You want to get away from me? You want to reject me? You want to rebel against me? You want to disobey me? Well, then I'm going to give you exactly what you want. I'll let you. You're out of my presence. And so Adam was driven out of the Garden of Eden. And that sin, rebellion, rejection, stemming from a deep distrust and a desire to be your own king, and it leads to destruction. Why? Why does it lead to destruction? Because we are built in the image of God. An image, if you look at an image in a mirror, that image is only as strong as the presence in that mirror, right? The image in a mirror is a mere reflection of its source. It needs the presence of the source to exist, So we need the presence of God to just exist, to really live life. We need the presence of God. We need his love. We need his approval. We need his embrace. We need his glory. We need his beauty. We need to serve him. But ever since the Garden of Eden, when we chose to become our own king, we chose to reject God. We chose to run from God. We chose to disobey God and rebel against God. We've essentially rejected the presence of God. We've become an image without a source. And in a blank image. And so we've lost the beauty of God. We've lost the brilliance of God. We've lost the glory of God. And so because we lost the presence of God and we've lost his love and we've lost his glory, what are we doing? We became this image without a source. We started looking for beauty. And we started looking for love. And we started looking for glory in other places and other things. Our relationships to replace God. And so instead of the glory of God, we replace the glory of God with the glory of a promotion, with the glory of a bonus, with the glory of wealth. Instead of the love of God, we replace that love with the love of a woman, the love of a man, sexual intimacy. We say, that's what I really need. But in ancient times, they knew it was the presence of God. That's what they really needed. Numbers chapter six, verses 24 to 26. You have one of the oldest benedictions. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. These, the Hebrew words, if you look at those uh, phrases, they're arranged in a particular way where each line is a further elaboration of the same line, the preceding line. So the Lord bless you, may the Lord bless you and keep you, is the same thing as may the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, which is the same thing. How does that happen? May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. The intimacy of God, turning, turning his face towards you, is the peace of God. To be intimate with God is to know peace. That peace is a shalom peace. That's the Hebrew word. It's a very specific word that means perfect peace. Holistic peace in every facet, in every dimension of our lives, relationally, financially, physically, environmentally, sexually. There's this internal peace. There's this sense that there's justice, that all is right in the world. And the ancients knew that you can only experience that type of peace in its holistic sense in the presence of God. So if you lose the presence of God... Your world, instead of there being peace, now your world is at war. There is going to be turmoil. There is ruin and destruction and unrest. That's the anxiety. Your anxiety is a fruit of that unrest. Your depression is a fruit of that destruction. And so what's going on in Jesus is a cosmic unrest, a cosmic war, cosmic ruin cosmic destruction that's the agony of the justice and the wrath of god coming on him why did he do it the love of the savior why did it It wasn't because he was disobedient it was because he was obedient It was because of his love for the Father and his faithfulness to the Father and his love for his people and his faithfulness and his promise to his people. That's why he came. Jesus chose to receive all of the justice, all of the wrath of God, the wrath that we deserve because of our sin, and it began right here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, there are people in the room right now who don't like what I just said. They say, well, this is why I'm not a Christian. In the Bible, we see this God who is so angry, filled with wrath all the time. That is not a loving God. I believe, I choose to believe that God is always loving. God is loving all the time, and he's always good. But think about this. I'm going to submit to you. A God without anger, a God without wrath, a God without justice, a God without the cup is not a loving God at all. Why? Several reasons. One, One, this one's relatively obvious, if God even lets, everyone here has been hurt in some way, shape, or form. Everyone here by now has been wronged in some way, shape, or form. If God even lets one of those things, there are people who've been wronged and that justice will never ever become, be compensated. You just know that you're just gonna have to move on. It could be really, really small. When you get to my age, there's some big things that sometimes you experience and you know there are going to be times in your life where you are never going to see that ever paid back. If God even lets the smallest of those things in your life go, evil wins. Sin has won. Secondly, if you've ever loved somebody, but you've been hurt by that person, think about this. Your anger for that towards that person is proportional to your love for that person you don't know them that well if they do something you're like whatever but if they are your closest friend and they've hurt you deeply your anger is going to be proportional to your love it's going to be proportional to the betrayal right Your anger is proportional to the love, which is proportional to the betrayal and the rejection that you've experienced from that person. In other words, it's deeply relational. You can't just let it go. No human being in this world will ever be able to truly let go of any type of betrayal unless they do one thing. They're going to make you pay for it if they've been hurt by you, or they're going to forgive you. But to forgive you, they're paying for it. If you forgive somebody, what are you doing? You're still paying. You're paying the price. You're gonna absorb the humiliation, the embarrassment, the betrayal, the hurt, the suffering, being alone, it's like drinking poison. Thirdly, if you're a parent, if you're expecting, let me tell you something, but even if you're not, you kinda know what I'm talking about here. You go to church and sometimes you see somebody else's children, somebody else's child, your neighbor's child, your friend's child, the person next to you, they're acting a fool. They're just acting up. What do you do? They're not your kids. So what do you do? You look at them, you're like, you smile, right? Smile. In your head, you're like, oh, it's so annoying. But that's about as ex- that's the extent that it goes. You look at them, you smile. But when it's your child acting a fool, you don't just look at him and go, oh, like, you don't just smile. Because what are you doing? There's a humiliation. There's an embarrassment. You tell them, kid. You know, it's, like, you know what's going to happen if you don't. You, you tell them, you've got to be quiet. You've got to be quiet, right? And they just start acting up. And let's say they openly rebel. What do you do? Time to go to the back of the room, right? You take them, you say, let's go, right? What happens? Sometimes you get stern. You get a stern look. Sometimes they get your voice, right? You grab them, you pull them aside, you talk to them. Other times, they might get your hand. There's a certain proportional amount of wrath that is proportional to justice. If you're a good parent, the wrath is gonna be proportional to the justice, which is proportional to the rebellion. If it's someone else's child, you just smile. Why, there's no real anger, why? Because you may love them to some degree, but not like you love your child, but if it's your child, there's anger, it's proportional to your love, which is proportional to the wrongdoing And so you discipline them because you know that if you let that child go in that moment, that child's rebellion will start to sit in into a pattern of foolishness that will lead them to hurt themselves in the long run. It may seem like love if you just let your kid go, but the thing is, if you let your kid go over and over and over and over again, that child's rebellion and their sin starts to well up, and what happens is it turns into a pattern of foolishness that will lead to their ruin, and it's gonna, that's going to hurt you. It just, it just pains you to even fathom that. Now, not all parents have a proportional and proportional anger, but now take a God who is infinitely loving, infinitely just, So, his justice is proportional to his love, and he's infinitely loving, infinitely just, then he will have an infinite wrath. He is loving his children, he is just towards the children, but there's the wrath, and it's proportional to his love. And think about this. This is the last thing I'm going to say about this. A God that just loves and always forgives and always just overlooks rebellion, there's no cost. It doesn't cost anyone to love like that. So to diminish Jesus' suffering and agony here is to diminish God's wrath. But then you're diminishing God's love. You see? Now, if you know this song, sing with me. See? From his head, his hands, his feet. You guys know this song? Sorrow and love flow me angled down. And the third verse goes like this. Love so amazing, so divine. Demands my soul, my life, my all. it team's like, oh gosh. <laughs> We're not singing that song ever again. <laughs> look, at the, look at the cross. Look at the cost. Infinite cost. Sorrow and love flow mingle down. A God without wrath, a God that just loves or just forgives all people, is not that loving. In fact, it's not loving at all. That means Hitler. Always go back to Hitler. (laughs) Just gonna forgive him, just gonna overlook it. Evil wins. There's no cost to his love. Jesus Christ suffered the agony we deserved. An infinite number of people Tremendously, billions and billions of sins, infinite number of sins, he absorbed and suffered the agony of death, the wrath and justice of God because of his love, his love for God, his love for his people. Now, what about the obedience of the Son? We have the love of our Savior, now the obedience of the Son. Why did God begin to even let Jesus experience this agony at Gethsemane? There's this amazing sermon by Jonathan Edwards uh, called Christ's Agony. If you study Gethsemane, you have to study and read that sermon. Jonathan Edwards is this great American philosopher, but he was also a Puritan writer and preacher, a great writer and preacher. And he puts it like this. God first brought him, that's Jesus, God first brought Jesus and he set him at the mouth of the furnace that he, Jesus, that he might look in and stand and view its fierce and raging flames and that he might see where he is going and that he might voluntarily enter into that and bear it for sinners. Essentially what What Jonathan Edwards is saying is that God brought Jesus to the mouth of the abyss, the mouth of the furnace at Gethsemane. Gethsemane. And there Jesus is staring down the abyss of hell, complete separation from God. He's experiencing it. He sees the fury, he sees the fury of the flames, and he sees where he's going. And God brought him there, why? So that he would still choose to enter in. Jonathan Edwards says that Jesus experienced the shadow of death. The shadow is the darkness, the abyss of death, and he still chose it. Verse 42, he says, may your will be done. Right prior to that, when he was praying, he says, not as I will, but as you will. And knowing that, we have full assurance of Jesus' faithfulness to the Father. It's an infinitely perfect faithfulness. So we see the infinite justice of God, the infinite wrath of God, coupled with the infinite love of God. And now we see the infinitely perfect obedience of God intertwined with the infinite love, perfect love that He has for His people. He's infinitely more loving. And that's so important, why? What are the two greatest commandments? Jesus Christ himself, when the disciples asked him, what does he say? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. At Gethsemane, Jesus Christ is fulfilling and embodying the two greatest commandments by going to the cross. He is infinitely obedient and loving to the Father and infinitely loving and faithful to his people. Peter, James, and John, there's three closest friends. They were there for support. And Jesus asked them to do one thing. What was it? Stay here with me. Stay here for me. Keep watch over me and pray. You see that in verse 40? You see in verse 43 and verse 45, in other words, I need you. You are my closest friends. I need you. I don't want to be alone, he says. I'm about to face the deepest darkness. I don't want to be alone. Pray for me. Three times he asked, but they fell asleep on him. I mean, God could have had them stay up. God could have done something to keep them up to affirm Jesus, to strengthen Jesus, to encourage Jesus, but no, they are out. And yet Jesus Christ is so focused and he's so gentle. He just keeps asking them. He knows their weaknesses. He knows our weakness. He he knows that's why he's dying for them. He knows he's going to face the abyss alone. He's going to face the emptiness, the furnace, the darkness alone. And there's no complaining. There is no resentment here. It's all love. I mean, the next time you all think, where are my friends when I need them? Where Where is my church in this great time of need? Where is God when I call out to him? Remember Jesus. He suffered the ultimate darkness, the ultimate abyss, the ultimate agony, and he did it completely alone. Now think about this. God says to Adam in the first garden, obey me regarding this tree. And Adam chose to rebel. He chose to disobey. But that tree was selfishness, self-glory, Self-serving. And yet, that's what Adam chose. Centuries later, God says, at a second tree, in this garden, to a second Adam, to Jesus, he says, obey me regarding the tree. And Jesus obeys. In a sense, God says, you can have me or you can have the tree. And Jesus still chose the tree, but he chose it out of obedience, this tree was the cross, and it was about selflessness. It was about God's glory. It was about serving God and serving his people, loving his people. God says, obey me regarding this tree. Jesus obeyed all love out of love. The first tree, Adam lived even though he disobeyed. How? Because at the second tree, Jesus died even though he obeyed. Look at the love of Jesus. Look at the faithfulness of Jesus. Look at the grace of Jesus. Jesus. comes back, his friends couldn't even stay up to pray. That's us. We are so unfaithful, over and over unfaithful. Jesus says, I will be faithful for you. I will be faithful for you. In Jesus, we have perfect obedience intertwined with perfect love. How does that shape us? How do you apply this? One, Jesus doesn't just obey and then die for our sins. He doesn't just do that, because if he did, if he just died, took on our sins, and died, then it would still be up to us to live, to earn the faithfulness, to earn God's love, to earn God's approval, and you can't. If Jesus just came to die for our sins, it would still be on us to earn access to God. When Jesus died, he chose to take on all of our sins. We call that, the technical term for that is called imputation our sins were transferred to Jesus our guilt was transferred to Jesus but on the other hand Jesus also lived the perfect life he lived the perfect life fully acceptable to God throughout his life throughout his character his ministry here at Gethsemane on the cross faithful to the end why did he do it so he could earn God's love for us My hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and his righteousness. There is a double transfer taking place on the cross. Our sins are being transferred to Jesus. Jesus's righteousness is being transferred to us. Double imputation, which gives us the assurance of God's presence because on the cross, Jesus, what does he do? He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, what he's saying is, I am utterly, totally ruined. I'm not just looking into the abyss. I'm in the abyss and I'm falling down. I'm not just staring at the heat of the flames. I'm experiencing the burning wrath of God. I am facing the ultimate destruction. This is the ultimate abyss. I am falling apart. In Gethsemane, Jesus was just praying alone. This is the ultimate aloneness. He is drinking. In Gethsemane, he is praying about drinking the cup. Here he is actually drinking the cup. He is drinking the cup and he's saying, I'm burning up inside. I'm experiencing the fire of hell, complete separation from the Father. He has turned his face away from me. Gethsemane was the beginning of the experience of that wrath. But on the cross, Jesus Christ was drinking the full extent of that poison, the full justice, the full wrath of God. And that was proportional, again, to the infinite love of God. And Jesus was infinitely obedient then. And so on the cross, he's taking everything, right? There's a wonderful hymn, one of my, no, one of my favorite hymns, at least lyrically, it's one of my favorite hymns. But on the, in the hymn, it says that Jesus Christ, he drank the dregs of God's wrath. You know what dregs are? When you're drinking tea, if you're a tea drinker, there's some of that stuff that floats to the bottom of your cup And what you do is you keep pouring more water in, it kind of gives you more tea, and you keep drinking. It says that Jesus took the dregs, and he sucked it all out, the dregs of God's wrath, until there was none left. He's saying, more, 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 until it is finished. It was done. Why did he do it? Jesus Christ was accepted. Jesus Christ was rejected so that we could be accepted in him. Jesus Christ was forsaken so that we could have access in him. Jesus Christ lost the love of the Father so we could have the love of the Father in him. Jesus Christ was rejected by the Father so that we could be approved by the Father in him. Union. So why are you working so hard then to get in? Why are you working so hard socially to get in? Why are you working so hard for your bosses and in your jobs to get in? You are in. To the degree that you trust in the gospel, this is the end of working so hard, trying so hard to get in. It's the beginning of rest. Every other God will tell you, you got to work, you got to obey. Only Jesus says, if you're tired, that's the only prerequisite. You can rest in me. You can have confidence and assurance that God's presence is with you because I've lost the presence. Every time you look at the cross, what do you see? Christ forsaken for you. That's your confidence. I was telling my wife in a car, uh, sort of reflecting on this, and I was saying, you know, Um, you realize that when Jesus was crucified, that he was crucified and it was finished and he died just before the Sabbath kicked in. So to the T, even down to the timing, we're always asking for extensions, right? Jesus, down to the timing, ended just before the Sabbath. Why? So we could have Sabbath freedom. Freedom. It's ours now. (sighs) We can also surrender. It's the second thing. In a sense, Jesus died twice because he was facing the furnace here at Gethsemane and on the cross. He took it all. And he got nothing for it. We're not like that. We pray, Lord, make me obey. But then we also want this and we want that from God and all these kind of things. And when you don't get those things, what happens? You're gonna take matters into your own hands and you get angry and resentful. You know why? Because you never obeyed in the first place. You never really obeyed in the first place. You're negotiating with God. You're bargaining with God. You're actually obeying yourself. You, don't, you may not know this, when you have children, you know, they get to a certain age where they just talk back to you all the time, right? You know, you know they're, they're, some of them get smart, right? They say, but mom, why can't I do this? I mean, if you just give me a good reason for why I can't do this, then I will listen. I will process what you're saying, and I will agree. If you're a mom, the best answer you can give is, because I said so, and I am your mother. You know why? Because anything else you do to explain then you're really appealing to the child's rationale. He's not obeying you, he's obeying himself. He's obeying his own ability to reason. He's processing what you're saying and he's saying, okay, well then I'm obeying myself, really. I'm telling myself this makes sense. What is trust? What does it mean to trust someone? To trust someone is to not sometimes know the reason. But because you're basing it on that person's character, that person's faithfulness, They are good for it. Out of total surrender, to be able to say, I am yours. Everything I have is yours. That's obedience. That's surrender. Thirdly, integrity. Look at the integrity of Jesus. He's in the dark, everyone else is sleeping. He's praying. What are you like when you're alone? What do you like outside of community group? What do you like outside of your meetings and all the other stuff that you do in the church? What do you like when no one you need to impress is watching? No one that you need to impress is around. What's integrity? The root word for integrity is integer. It means whole. In other words, you're not a fraction. There's not a part of you that obeys and a part of you that's duplicitous and is thinking something else or wanting something else or doing it for some other purpose. In other words, are you not fractioned? Are you whole? Are you integrated? Or are you disintegrated? Jesus, alone, facing his deepest agony. You know, we tend to, snap at our friends and go off on our friends, and then we come back later and say, you know, I was going through a lot, and I really apologize. Jesus, he's going through the agony of death and hell, and he's exactly the same inside and out. Look at the faithfulness of Jesus. Next, because of your union with Jesus, because Jesus prayed, you can pray. And look at Jesus. Jesus is the king of the universe, but he's so honest with God. He's so vulnerable with God. And he's so trusting with God. He's overwhelmed by what he's about to experience, and yet he's still so trusting. He says, Not my will, yours be done. There's no fakeness. You know, he doesn't go to God and and say, "Um, I mean, this is really hard, God, but God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. He doesn't do that. And because he doesn't do that, you don't have to do that. The gospel enlivens in you a real view of life, a real view of yourself, and you can be honest and vulnerable to other people. Jesus didn't have to say like, hey, this is hard, but God is good, it's all good. He doesn't do that, you know why? He lived out the goodness of God. He trusted the goodness of God. He depended on the goodness of God. He's about to go into the abyss. God had made a promise to redeem those who love him. And he loves the Father more than anyone else in the universe. He is just trusting that though I die, God will redeem. And yet he still prays, I'm overwhelmed and I'm falling apart. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me still obedient. That assurance leads to an intimacy which leads to honest prayers which leads to obedience and submission. What do you pray for? What do you pray like? Next, community. Look, if the king of creation says, my friends, come with me. Watch over me pray for me. Why wouldn't you? You need it. But it's a broken community. The disciples had one job, watched over Jesus and pray, and they failed. Are there people in your life that have failed you? You've asked them to watch over you, and they failed you, fallen asleep on you while you're suffering in your darkness, in the abyss, and you're just so alone how do you respond? Most of us, what we do is we say, I'm done with you. I mean, I needed you and you weren't there. I'm done. But we fall asleep on Jesus all the time, over and over and over, and yet Jesus is over and over and over forgiving us, and he's dying for us. That is a friend. That is the kind of community that we are called to be, forgiving with vulnerable generosity. And if you are forgiving, and look, look the, more, the, bro- the more broken you are, and the more forgiving you are, and the more vulnerable and generous you are in your vulnerability, you become a very winsome person. Just a few more. Next, trust. In Jesus, we have the perfect embodiment of integrity and prayer and friendship. He's our advocate. That's why you trust him. Totally trust him. But we don't really trust him, right? I mean, we don't even really trust ourselves. We're afraid God's going to let us down. We're also afraid we're going to let God, I can't do this. I can't live like this, obey all the time. I fail every day. Look at Jesus' love for you in the garden. I mean, he drank the poison of hell. And yet it didn't melt away his love for you. Do you think there's anything that you could do in your life that will make Jesus say, that's it, <laughs> I'm done with you. Do you think honestly think that? He drank the poison of the fire of hell for you. And you think like, this screw up, this is it. I'm too guilty, I don't deserve this. That is not an act of humility. That is not an admission of humility. That is an admission of pride. To think that there's something you can do to lose God's love for you. Why wouldn't you trust God? that God is out for your best interest, knowing that Jesus himself, God sacrificed his own son for you. No one else cares like this. No one else will ever shepherd you like this. And lastly, you get poise. Here you have Jesus, he's overwhelmed and he's dying, just at the glimpse of the suffering that he's about to endure. Do you know that throughout history, for centuries after Jesus, Christian martyrs, they died with much more courage than Jesus had. I mean, they were burned at the stake. They were lit up on fire and used as torches in stadiums. uh, Sometimes they were placed into ovens and baked. They They were seared on giant frying pans. And do you know that as they were suffering and dying, they were oftentimes recorded as singing hymns in doing so. Why? Because they knew that no matter what they suffered, they will never ever have to go through what Jesus suffered. Their union brought about an assurance that brought about poise. It brought about power. It brought about peace. So because Jesus obeyed in his magnitude of suffering, they were were able to obey in their smaller ovens, in their smaller fires. Because Jesus still delighted in the Father, they still were able to sing and delight in the Father, even in their darkest moments, especially in their darkest moments. If you see Jesus go through the ultimate agony for you, then your earthly agony will never ruin you because in Jesus, even death will not separate you from the love of God. It will only complete it and bring you one forevermore. No matter how broken that death, you have ultimate access. So in the face of your many furnaces, in the face of your many abysses, you can face it with much greater poise and power Look at Jesus Christ dying in the dark, praying in the dark, alone for you. Come to him. Watch over that and pray. Fall down with him. See the sweat mixed with blood and tears for you. And then you will rise again with him. Let's pray.